Hello, welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons and I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and Alastair Donalds to chew over the last week or two's news uh, and the big story that's been in the news quite a lot in the past week in particular has been the topic of public sector pay. There's been much criticism of the fact that the Conservatives are still proposing to keep uh, public sector pay to no more than 1% per year. Uh, which would mean that there's effectively been a cut in real terms, a very substantial cut in real terms, over the past uh, few years. Um, And now that policy has been publicly called into question, not just by the opposition, but actually by senior members of the Conservative government. So what do we think about that, Claire? Well, I think that anyone forced into a 1% cap is rightly indignant, and a general 1% cap seems to me to not make any sense But there are a number of caveats to be made, I suppose. I mean, first of all, I think that when it's debated and discussed, the issue of public sector starts to take on this kind of everybody who works for the public sector is equivalent to the fire service, you know, the kind of heroes of our day, particularly post-Grenville, or teachers and nurses are always mentioned. But I think we should remember that the local authority workers um, that are stacked full of people who are middle managers and bureaucrats and you know well-being experts and nannying uh, busybodies and so on are also public sector workers so i think that i would want to simply say let's look at the different um uh, workers and see um whether we think that they should get a pay rise or not the the argument of course is put that we can't afford to pay rise but i think that possibly there could be a shake out of a lot of the public sector that would facilitate more money being available for those who i think might want to get it i also think it's complicated by things such as without wanting to say that teachers shouldn't get a pay rise i think there's a greater crisis in education at the moment because schools have definitely got a financial shortfall that means that there's less money per pupil and that's causing real anxiety because they're not replacing staff in schools as a consequence so there's a a kind of crisis in schools that's not about pay but also teachers incrementally get a pay rise every year anyway nothing to do with the one percent because that's just the way their 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 uh, professional practice works and there are some people who are understandably saying well what that means is that it doesn't matter whether you're a rubbish teacher or a good teacher you get a pay rise all the time and that maybe appraisal should be brought in so I think there are complicating factors in different arenas but I think the most important backdrop to this which is the one which is not discussed sufficiently is whether uh, austerity or austerity measures like holding pay down are going to solve the economic problems that we face and I you know the cliche is there isn't a money tree that's true a grown-up response to this has to be a recognition of the kind of uh, problems of debt that we're in and the the outcome of the recession but it's not a zero-sum game and what's lacking from this discussion is a proper discussion about what one would need to do to really kickstart and stimulate an economic revival which actually might mean for example, shaking up the whole of industry if you had a fourth industrial revolution and a lot of people losing their jobs in other sectors. So I, I, But that's what's missing because you're always looking at it from a kind of limited pot of money, what can we afford, rather than how are we going to look at this as grown-ups, meaning some people might say, well, I, we can't afford to have a pay rise, 
but where we have got a collective endeavour to ensure that the economy is thriving again. Yeah, it does seem to me that it's it's this lack of clarity on what genuine solutions might be to economic problems and to how to create a viable future that has, uh, to some extent, given a, a dynamic towards this whole uh, public sector pay stuff. Because um, if you, if, if, in the absence of any clear uh, policies for uh, economic growth, it ju- just seems to me that each of the uh, particular constituencies within the Tory party, depending on the department and which uh, element of the, the workforce they represent, is just willing to break ranks and almost uh, freelance their policies into uh, claiming that you know they, their particular constituency has greater needs than others. So there's this just, just this general uh, breakdown just now, it seems to me, in terms of uh, a policy on, on, on the future of, of, of the economy and the public sector within it. Um, and the indicative of that seems to be the way that uh, May, over the last day or so, seems to have been resorting to the Cameron arguments of, of a couple of years ago in order to justify uh, l- belatedly uh, holding down public sector pay when people like Boris Johnson have, have broken ranks and come out with it. So it's just the, 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 the really striking thing is just the, the, the kind of lack of um, overall policy for how to deal with these things. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the real problem is that the, the tax base hasn't been growing in line with what's needed to uh, fund the greater demands upon um, the public sector. I mean, particularly in healthcare, I mean, the, the NHS spending has been rising. It has been rising, I think, in real terms. But that doesn't account for the fact that you know, the demands upon the health service have been growing as well because we have an ageing population. And uh, things like social care have been uh, squeezed and there hasn't really been any proper attempt to deal with the funding crisis there. And when the Tories did do that in the general election campaign by putting in this idea of uh, what became labelled the dementia tax, um, then you know, they, they lost votes as a result of it from from the discussion that, that occurred more generally. And the, another interesting piece of uh, news that came through yesterday was the fact that UK productivity is now back at 2007 levels. And, and this is raising all sorts of questions because one of the things that's supposed to happen in a recession is that unproductive areas of the economy, or unproductive firms, um, are supposed to go out of business and that's supposed to give a productivity boost to the rest of the economy. And that really didn't happen in the and in this fight, uh, economic crisis that actually productivity has stagnated, not just in the UK, but in quite a few other countries around the world. And because of that, we're not producing the wealth that's going to provide for you know better public services and better pay and all this sort of stuff and get the deficit down. I think the deficit remains to some extent a a significant issue that we do not want to be constantly uh, growing and growing our um, uh, government debt. I mean, I think that, you know, there's several areas that, you know, the Institute of Ideas maybe need to tackle, and we have tackled, but it's kind of worth paying attention to. I think because if you over kind of sanctify the public sector or state-run services as good and kind of everything in the private sector is problematic, you get this kind of inability to discuss honestly what's happening in the public sector. So the way 
that it's not about you know the NHS being having its budget ring fenced. It's the fact that it's treated as a sacred cow that you're not allowed to look honestly at. In terms of the fact that not only are the demands on it enormous, I mean, real genuine social demands. I mean, there's nothing. It's wonderful that people are living longer, but that creates issues itself. Medicine is developing, which means that things are more, I mean, you know, in a brilliant way. Again, you can intervene more and save people's lives, but those are expensive interventions often. So this is important to note. But we also all know that the NHS, in its various iterations of how it's organised, is not fit for purpose. But you dare not say that because you're accused of being a, you know, a neoliberal, you know, fascist who wants to, people to die on trolleys and so on. And I think that this, this is true of whole swathes of public sector. Uh, and so that's why it annoys me that if you, for example, say, well, you know, I don't think we should just say that everybody in the public sector deserves a pay rise. Everybody immediately says, you want nurses to suffer. You know, that, that immature, sectarian way of dealing with this debate really doesn't help. And your point then um, is reflecting the broader questions that are raised by Corbyn's commitment to um, renationalise whole swathes of industry. You know, I'm not um, any more enthusiastic about the private sector running sections of society than the state running sections of society. But I can't but feel that the renationalising agenda is about basically saving unprofitable areas of the economy. You You know, it's a subsidy. And what has happened, as you rightly point out, Rob, is that we are not solving the productivity crisis, the thing which will actually be an engine of economic growth that will benefit us all. So that we have a moral closing down of a debate around whole swathes of hugely important areas of you know, fiscal commitment, like the public sector. Um, and on the other hand, we haven't got a frank and honest discussion about what we need to do to get the economy to go. So we are kind of torn. And I'm fearful that, you know, um, you know, Boris and Gove's interventions on the 1% cap haven't helped at all. You know, I mean, you can say, well, don't, let's just have a 1% pay cap, which I don't think there should be a 1% pay cap. Um, however, you know, you can't just say that so that you might be popular with a few public sector workers. I mean, you have to have a proper intervention into this area where you argue something coherently. And even in relation to the fire service, just to use that as one example, because they've been so shown to be such an undervalued area, you know, the kind of bravery, people who put themselves on the line. Grenville did bring that to the fore and I'm delighted it did. But there's whole sections of the fire service, you know, where there are people, because there are less fires now, thankfully, because of modern safety, ironically, um, where there's a lot of people who work for the fire service who are going around doing diversity talks in schools, you know, that, that you know, that kind of telling people, um, you know, to be careful in their home, you know, it, actually lots of areas of it that are not those uh, frontline workers. So I think we just have to be a little um, sophisticated in the way we talk about this. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, taking uh, uh, the, the, obviously the fire at Grenfell into account as well, I mean, it's obviously the case that um, large sections of the public sector have absolutely failed to do their job uh, when absolutely needed to. So um, this, this whole idea that the public sector is all good is, has, has been badly exposed over the past while. Um, 
That said, the, 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 the idea that's starting to emerge now, and in, in, in fact has become a reality over the last 24 hours, of uh, central government going in and taking over local authorities, uh, on the one hand seems to have an element of sense to it, because uh, it is the case that people badly need uh, the services that the local council is meant to be provided, and quite patently isn't. On the other hand, I get a little bit nervous uh, when we talk about sending task forces in to override democratically uh, elected local authorities. And I think you know we have to be wary of, 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 of the fact that uh, uh, we cannot just lock, stock and barrel remove uh, local controls. Right. We've mentioned uh, Gove and Johnson, and it's probably worth taking a step back and looking at the broader political picture now after the election, because there seems to be a bit of a mess, really. On, on the one hand, Theresa May has her authority is shot and, and therefore what we seem to be seeing is uh, various manoeuvrings behind the scenes. So on the one hand we have Johnson and Gove uh, putting pressure on Philip Hammond to uh, release more money for public sector pay. On the other hand there seems to be dis- uh, differences between uh, Hammond and Davis over Brexit. Everybody talking about w- exactly when can we get rid of Theresa May um, and so there's a, there's a mess on that side uh, of, of, of Parliament. And on the, on the other side, we have Jeremy Corbyn apparently sort of, you know, cock of the walk now, just thinking out loud about when exactly he's going to become Prime Minister. The Queen, but the Queen's speech goes through, um, the, the Tories get that. And when it comes to the amendments on Brexit, he's adopting a pro-Brexit line, not a single market line, etc., just as the manifesto said, and therefore ending up sacking members of his uh, you know, sh- shadow ministerial team, much to the apparent shock of some many of the people who voted Labour who thought that somehow that would um, hold back Brexit. But in fact, the Corbyn policy is broadly to do much the same things as what the Conservatives are. So, So where do we stand in British politics now? God, it's hard to know, isn't it? But um, it's interesting because there's a much more flagrant discussion about Brexit not happening on the right from people who have previously said it will happen. And I think think that any of us who were enthusiastic about that decision, both because of the content of it, but also because of what it represented in terms of a democratic turn, might need to be nervous because there's, there's undoubtedly a much more confident establishment, this is beyond political parties, an establishment who feel, oh, it might not happen at all, we can negotiate our way around this. And, I, and, I, and that makes me feel very, understandably, uh, sus- you know, suspicious and we don't want that betrayal to occur. But I think that's definitely happened since the election and so on. And obviously that is situated more within the Tory camp than anywhere else. And... Whereas people like um, maybe Gina Miller and some of the kind of hard Ramonas have become something of a laughing stock, you know. I mean, even amongst Remain people, it's a bit like, oh, you're the embarrassing, you know, kind of AC Groening's please be quiet, you know. There's there's a more confident sense amongst some of the serious Remain supporters that actually this could be somehow sidelined, watered down and so on. That's going on. At the same time, as you pointed out, the Labour Party have kind of gone, no, we're hard Brexit, you'll have to put up with it and uh, deal with it. I I think it's interesting because they don't obviously have any power. 
and it's partly about Corbyn and his supporters asserting their discipline over the party and this happens to be one of the ways that they're doing it. There's been an instant um, where a, a, a popular MP who's not a Corbynista, her local Labour Party has been taken over um, by uh, Momentum supporters, I mean perfectly legitimately taken over, I'm not suggesting foul things have occurred, but they've issued a statement saying that the MP in question has to agree that she goes to them before she votes for anything in Parliament, and um, she should never vote against a war or never defy the leader, and it's like a chilling document to read, I mean they put it out publicly. And so I, I'm slightly fearful that partly the Brexit, you know, you behave or you get sacked line is l less about Brexit and more about an internal disciplining mechanism of this is kind of like a red line. However, I want to also be optimistic uh, to a certain extent that there is a sufficient commitment to the Brexit democratic moment in sections of the Labour Party that they also are not prepared to betray it. And they seem more hardline and less wobbly than a lot of people in the Tory party so it is ironic just a just a note on Corbyn though or, or on, on the whole Labour project I mean I think that you know a little bit of humility might be required I mean it's one thing being confident that you might be able to win in the next election even though we don't know when that election might be it's another thing kind of overly confidently lording it over everyone and kind of pretending that you didn't just lose the last election and of course they're delighted they did this much better than the humiliation everybody had anticipated but they have not won the hearts and minds of the British public they've not rebuilt their party from scratch they have yet to make convincing cases as I've already pointed out in relation to economic development and so on I, 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 if I were them, you know, the likes of Owen Jones and Paul May, I mean, Owen Jones, I think, has just said that there's going to be kind of Armageddon-like wipeout of the Tories when they have the next election. I mean, there's something about that kind of overconfidence that I think is an unattractive feature of the enthusiasm for Labour at the moment. Um, and taking over the party machine is not the same as, as I say, convincing the electorate that you might be capable of running the country. Yes, I agree with that. I, th I think um, the context for uh, the success of Corbyn just now, to the extent that it is a success, is very definitely the chaos and the collapse of the Tories. And I think looking back at it now, you could, you, I mean, we've known for, for many years that the Tory party had been running on empty in terms of uh, offering uh, useful solutions uh, for the future. But I, I think they were able to benefit from the financial crash of 2007-8 and to come in in that government of 2010 almost as the slightly safer pair of hands that would take over as the alternative for Labour. And then you could see how they jumped the bandwagon of Brexit in 2016, and it appeared to give them uh, some sort of momentum. Now that they've lost that, they just appear to be stand, stand, stood exposed as, as, as having nothing, nothing to offer. And I think this is, this is the, the context uh, under which the, 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 the Labour Party did better than we all expected at, 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 at the general election. So I think, you know, a, a party that ran on the whole idea of offering strong and stable government at a time when Brexit had 
unlocked a situation and made things a bit more dynamic and people more interested at least in exploring how we could change things wasn't really going to work at that general election. I think that's been proved obvious now. That said, I agree with Claire that, that um, the, the, the kind of cockiness of Labour having not really done the work in terms of uh, A, got the policies and, 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 uh, and the understanding of how to change the future, but B, really, I think, won the support across the electorate, because there's no doubt that they have won over sections of the electorate, but I think there's very questionable uh, the extent to which they've won the wider electorate, and I think, you know, those, those uh, uh, figures from the election that showed how people made up their minds at the very last moment indicate that their support could be tentative and as likely to disappear as quickly as it's it's materialized absolutely yeah i think it's it's a it's a very um wobbly support i mean i think the conservative support is quite wobbly as well the fact that both parties polled over 40 percent, i think is not going to be repeated in any future general election but part of that was about a slightly fudgy description of what labor's policy would be on brexit and so they were able to get both returning ukip voters in the north and the midlands uh, and at the same time get sort of a fairly middle-class student uh, or public sector worker-type people in the South to all to vote for them, that can't hold. At some point, they're, they're going to have to nail their colours to the mast, and when they do, they're going to piss off one of those groups. Those tensions still exist. And I, I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that you know, Corbyn's authority within the parliamentary party may be high at the moment or at least nobody feels in a position where they can challenge him but things that are moving fast in British politics at the moment and six months 12 months down the line things can look very different. Well actually Tom Watson and um, the deputy of the Labour Party interestingly at the weekend in the Sunday papers did an interview I think with the Observer in which he said um, and I thought this was a, a, a frank and honest uh, interview well, you know, Glastonbury's one thing, but now we have to win the working classes. And I think that that was a recognition that there, that, that that support has a certain tentative quality to it. And I think that um, we don't yet know, and um, people I know um, have told me that young people who voted for Corbyn as a Remain vote, and I don't think all young people voted for him on that basis, but I've been told by people who've said, well, they're just going to be feel betrayed, just like with the Lib Dems on tuition fees. I pointed out that actually it was in their manifesto, and it was a bit like, well, he reads the manifesto, if you know what I mean. But I, I don't think Corbyn will have betrayed the manifesto, but there's no doubt about it that a lot of support in some areas was for Remain. Now, whether that is still going to be a defining feature for those young people, it's very hard to say. One, one indication, though, of why politics is such a mess is the debate around tuition fees and the young. You know, um, there was a kind of floated idea, this is again the Tories somehow thinking, oh, or sections of the Tory party thinking, um, and it was kind of floated on the front page, you know, leaked to various newspapers, that there were sections thinking that the Tory party should do something about tuition fees, uh, bringing them down or abolishing them or whatever in order to win young voters. I mean, it's so insulting to young voters on the one hand, that transactional view of politics. And I really don't think that the young can be bought off in quite a straightforward way like that as it, as it goes. It also just doesn't make any sense because um, the Labour Party keep claiming, Corbyn has made a big virtue of this, that 
tuition fees are put off working class people going to university. It's actually just, that's fake news if ever there was some, right? All the stats show that is not true. You know, that the, the people who are not put off going to university by tuition fees are working class kids, right? They're actually able to go. In a way, it has got a level playing field. I don't like tuition fees. We're not a great supporter of them, but for different reasons as it goes. But this sort of claim that, you know, if only we get rid of tuition fees, all would be well in the HE sector, and then that way we can court the youth. I think that if young people, you know, generationally were to consider the way they're being treated by the two mainstream parties as some kind of stage army that'd be bought off by a kind of, you know, free pass at university, hopefully they'll realise that both of them are scallies, right, and that they should be rejected and demand to be taken far more seriously than, you know... Um, people who think nothing other than you know a few pennies and pence and who also don't understand that what's really lacking is having a decent university education and a society in which you might want to kind of go from being young to get older in which at the moment is not on the offer yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems that in, in, in that spirit, a lot of the discussion, this is slightly back to the public sector again, more generally, but um, a lot of the discussion around all sorts of things just now is just how you throw resources at things. So tuition fees or the NHS or, or education, so on and so forth. Um, and what, we, what I think would be far more useful at this, this stage is to initiate a genuine debate around what these services are for, what they represent. It's, it's, I may obviously uh, attempted to initiate some sort of debate around social care during the election, which was then just uh, rejected and, and she didn't get to take it forward. But I, I think these are difficult issues that we really do need to raise just now and actually have a proper discussion about them. Um, let's move away from... British politics now and there's been a few different things going on on the world stage that are, are quite interesting I'll just mention them all together and we can uh, pick up on whatever we want. One of the other big stories this week has been the row between Donald Trump and CNN over a video not produced by Donald Trump but by some online troll um, showing a bit of wrestling footage from the past in which the Donald Trump hits somebody, but their face has been obscured by a CNN logo. This has apparently caused outrage, and yet more hand-wringing about how unpresidential Donald Trump is. Then we have Emmanuel Macron, who's starting to uh, attract comparisons with Napoleon and refusing to sort of answer questions in the press because as his spokesman said uh, his thoughts are too complex to be dealt with in a press conference and starting to look rather up himself let's be honest and then we have Angela Merkel um, basically shocking a lot of liberal types who like her because she's you know, basically the de facto head of the European Union they're, they're pro uh, all things European at the moment basically once again reiterating she doesn't think gay marriage is a, a good idea, although eventually it went through in the uh, Bundestag. So what do we think about any or all of these things in terms of uh, the questions of political leadership in the world today? Maybe just, you know, to quickly start with Macron and Merkel, because there's sort of not as much to say and yet, and then come back to Trump. But on that, I thought what was interesting was just that it's 
um, a lesson to us all to not um, easily kind of attach the kind of hero or villain label to people. And I think that, that Macron not only has um, behaved in this kind of, you know, ancien regime type, you know, I'm above everything uh, way and his pretentiousness, which might kind of have a kind of, oh yes, well, French intellectuals are like that. I mean, I think it, it, it bodes badly in terms of, you know, he hasn't particularly got a party to answer to. He really is behaving like that kind of floating above elite also, the content of the speech is were interesting because it looks as though workers' rights are going to get a massive kicking under Macron, which, you know, great liberal supporter of all things progressive. Oh, maybe not. And nobody knows what to say. You know, there's a whole a swathe of illiberalism in what he said uh, underneath the pretentiousness. And I think that people just don't know what to do because he's just become the idol of all the people who say, if only we could have a Macron in Britain. And then it's like, do you want a Macron in Britain? I and mean, this is kind of dictatorial behaviour that feels it owes nothing to anyone, accountability, not part of it, that one might be rather nervous of and frightened about. And so I think that people have been a little bit, um, that's kind of caused a sort of ripple of anxiety amongst liberals. And then the Merkel thing I just found so ironic because it was a kind of general hounding and demonisation of the DUP who never mentioned gay marriage in their attempt to understandably get as much out of the Tories as possible for being sort of sometimes partners, but they didn't bother talking about gay marriage, they didn't make that a requirement. And then Merkel just says, oh yeah, I'm against gay marriage. And nobody knows what to say. It's like Tim Farron got absolutely persecuted for the same sort of thing and he actually didn't vote against gay marriage I mean he said he was a bit nervous that it may be a sin but he didn't kind of vote against it she voted against it so I don't agree with it and again oh she doesn't quite fit in with the cosmopolitan liberal ideal so in that sense I think it's just worth saying that all of these kind of attempts at fitting people into easy labels. I think the realignment of politics is such that one just needs to be careful. We all need to be careful about realising that things aren't as straightforward as they appear to be. But I don't mind calling out liberal hypocrisy on this one and just saying, come on, all of you, you've been going on about how brilliant these people are, and now you're strangely silent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and across the Atlantic, it's six months into the Trump presidency, and there's just a general layer of chaos. I think it's it's fair to say uh, about American politics just now. I, there was a report uh, last week, I think, which suggested that 96% of the jobs that he needs to fill uh, in in government are, remain unfilled, which I find really difficult to believe. But it, the very fact that it's been talked about in those sorts of figures, uh, I think is just reflective of the way that government has uh, in America is, is now just generally come to a point of dysfunctionalism and it's, 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 it's not working and uh, he's, he's facing all sorts of problems on the domestic front that even his commission uh, on, on the voting uh, inquiry seems to be in the states are rejecting sending the sort of information that he wants. Um, there's reports in the last couple of weeks of economic problems and some of the very stuff that he set out uh, in as would be the hallmark of his presidency, like protecting American jobs, will Ford are opening, planning to opening factories in China, and even on that level, he seems to be facing problems. And it seems that the reaction to that is to some extent to lash out 
and obviously the situation in the Middle East is is one that everybody's noting where uh, he's he's um, without seemingly any semblance of a kind of geopolitical strategy for what's what needs to happen is just uh, wading into things without any real strategy and and the 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 result of that the ramifications of that are, are are going to be particularly serious and I think that then is is the context where there's so much focus on just his his uh, tweets and his social media uh, which seem to almost be a substitute for any sort of, of, of policy and the I mean it was incredibly strange the the fact that he chose to tweet the CNN uh, uh, video thing I mean is that presidential behavior I mean it seems to me to be more than a little bit mad really but the reaction from CNN has been even worse and I think it's interesting uh, given that we've spent most of the last year being told that Trump is 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 the kind of great fascist ogre who's going to destroy America well the response from CNN which has basically been to seek out the guy who made the original video uh, and threatened to expose him publicly for having done it, uh, which has caused him to issue this retraction of everything that he does, this, this apology. Um, I, th- I think that's more worrying in many ways than Trump himself, because here we have large media organisations who are, uh, in effect, uh, censoring what can be said uh, in, in the public domain. So I, I think that's hugely worrying. Yeah, I, on the Trump thing, I mean, I I was actually less shocked by him retweeting this one than a lot of his tweets. I mean, I suppose I've just got to the point where it's a low threshold, but the idea of expecting Trump to be presidential has kind of gone from my mind when it comes to Twitter. I laughed when I saw it. <laughs> I, I thought it was quite funny, silly, <laughs> mad. Um, I was kind of, you know, I was kind of um, relieved he hadn't made it because I thought that'd be a moment of madness. But, you know, I could kind of get it, right? Somebody makes a funny thing, he kind of does it. I thought it was the not as serious as people have said. You know, CNN claimed, even before they did their terrible um, kind of clampdown on the, on the person who made the film, uh, CNN claimed, um, and I saw lots of people saying, this is Donald Trump inciting America to um, kill or act acts of violence on all journalists. This has been the serious debate, and I thought you, the over-literalism is something that only Trump would normally do. I mean, Trump is the one who's got no sense of humour generally, thin-skinned, can't understand the difference between somebody, you know, a cartoon and something else. But, it, but so that was the thing, which I just thought it was an overreaction. The irony is that the more that American politics gets reduced to a row about whether, you know, the hashtag CNN blackmail versus, you know, whether Trump is inciting violence against journalists about his tweets, the more that it remains in that kind of culture war about offence and free speech and, you know, lack of humour and who's, you know, the media, the more Trump will retain his base because it actually doesn't allow you to have the serious political discussions. And one of the things which, um, having recently met and been involved in a discussion with some quite serious um, Democrat supporters, you know, who, um, you know, obviously spent hours explaining to me what was wrong with Donald Trump, I then asked them, what's the state of the Democrat Party? And they literally were silent. You know, they were, they, they, and and then one of them said, well, we don't really know what's in, we're not really in a position. You know, what's happened is is that there's a collapse of the American elite, I think. It's not just, 
Nobody knows how to hold Trump to account. So he's held to account on his own terms in a way that gets reduced to like student politics style. And in that contest, he doesn't always come off that badly. Uh, with, with the vast waves of people who just think, oh, CNN, get over yourself. Mainstream media, how dare you, and so on and so forth. Yet there are serious things he's doing that actually we do need to hold him to account for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we were, we were having a serious discussion in the past week about the 25th Amendment, where the, which is the, uh, the amendment of the Constitution which allows for the replacement of the President when they, uh, he or she, well he, uh, is uh, incapable of holding office anymore, and like the idea that this should be invoked. Trump's behaviour is bizarre, and it's particularly bizarre for a President but nonetheless, it is not mad. It is entirely explicable in terms of who Donald Trump is and how he's always behaved. So, um, so, so to have that discussion, um, as Claire says, is, is to completely miss the point about the fact that, for example, his attempt to uh, replace Obamacare it seems to be, at the very least, completely stuck and may well fall apart as Republicans are starting to walk away from it, which is you know a flagship policy. His attempt to say you know we're going to hang on to American jobs, as you, as you say, Alastair. You know if if Ford are starting to talk about moving jobs overseas, then he's failed in that other great plank of his policy. Um, I doubt there's been a shovel stuck in the ground on the, the war with Mexico. And so actually, in terms of his stated policies, he hasn't done anything. And in the meantime, he's acting in a very slightly erratic way towards the Middle East, because he doesn't really have any policy around that. While there's some very serious things going on in relation to Qatar, for example, he's flapping around at the edges in relation to Syria. So much to uh, um, <laughs> to think about over the, the coming weeks and months. Um, but, but, but before we uh, leave you... Um, we are, we're just 10 days away now from the Academy, which is our annual residential weekend where we take a step back from the, um, the tug of war in the news and actually try to look at some, some bigger issues in a, a wider historical context. And one of the lecturers at this year's event is uh, Claire. So could you talk a bit about what your lecture is about and more broadly what the event is about? So very briefly, um, actually, that 25th Amendment discussion is pertinent to this because um, I'm doing the lecture on narcissism. And what's happened is, is that there's a serious discussion going on amongst psychotherapists, psychologists and psychiatrists in America about diagnosing Trump as having narcissistic personality disorder and that's the basis on which this um, mental health diagnosis has emerged and I think it just is an indication of the fact that narcissism as a kind of diagnostic category is far too widely being used at the moment. What my lecture will look at is actually a development from Christopher Lash's 1979 uh, book on um, uh, the culture of narcissism, a brilliant book uh, uh, in its time, um, but which was trying to use that um, category, that diagnostic category, to look at something about the uh, changes in personality in a kind of social sense. But interestingly today, people are queuing up to use that diagnostic category very literally on more and more uh, people. We're looking at the whole emergence and history of the self 
of the emergence of the individual, whether we become a me, me, me society and where it originates from. One of my critiques of Christopher Lash is that he diagnoses the problem as being too much individualism. And what I'm going to say is that if there's something about contemporary narcissism today, it's that people aren't individualistic enough, that we've lost a sense of what the real autonomous individual uh, represents. Mine will be a very minor lecture amongst some greats, and I'm really looking forward to having um, the historical and philosophical backdrop to understanding how it is that we've ended up in a situation whereby young people today, for example, are completely self-absorbed, self-obsessed, and there is a feeling of a kind of increasing narcissism, allegedly gone up 300% over the last 10 years in society in general. Um, and yet at the same time, we have a weaker sense of self, a kind of diminished sense of what it means to be a human and an individual, and how we can reconcile that paradox, how we can understand uh, moving it forwards uh, in a more progressive way. Okay, so the event is taking place on the 15th and 16th of July. Um, it is titled From Universal Man to Identity Politics, The Rise and Fall of the Self. Um, takes place over two days. You can come along to just one day. You can stay over and enjoy the uh, conversation over beer and wine at the end of each day's discussions, which is very, very uh, absorbing, interesting, and uh, a, a, a great thing to do. Um, you can find out more about it by visiting the Institute of Ideas website. Uh, it's prominently advertised there. And uh, please do come along. It's a really, really great event. Uh, that's all for this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you've enjoyed it and you would like to hear more, please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.